Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. So Talansky, a good-looking guy, but corrupt to the core, he knew that I hated him. And he would harass me in school. I was 12. And then one day, I, he embarrassed me in front of the whole class. The next day, I came in and I wrote an Aramaic saying on the blackboard from the Talmud, he who embarrasses someone in public doesn't get to go to the next world. Well, when he saw this, he freaked out and came over to me and grabbed me by my neck. I, of course, I was 12 then kicked him in a place where you're not supposed to kick a man. And he fell on the floor in a fetal position, and then I kicked him again in the head. So they called my father, who was in school more than I was. I was always getting in trouble. And my father, who's an Israeli, said to Talansky, did you embarrass my son in public? Talansky said, yes, he deserved it. My father said to him, you will not go to the next world. Then took me home and beat the shit out of me. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited about today and my guest, Academy Award-winning producer Howard Rosenman. This episode, part one today and part two on Thursday, a lot of stuff in here is going to blow you away. I guarantee you. But before we get started, I just want to thank you guys so much for all your feedback, all your support. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for subscribing, listening, and passing it on. It's amazing what you guys have done for the show, and I am very, very grateful. If you want to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at either Twitter or Instagram. And without further ado, let's get on this. This is a long introduction, but this guy has had an incredible, unbelievable, extraordinary career. Howard Roseman is best known for being the producer of the remake of Father of the Bride, starring Steve Martin and Diane Keaton. The cult phenomenon Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer and The Family Man, starring Nicolas Cage. Roseman's films have won two Peabody Awards, an Academy Award, and top honors at the Sundance Berlin and Cannes Film Festivals. With 30 films to date, Roseman's work ranges from such popular favorites as The Main Event with Barbara Streisand, Stranger Among Us with Melanie Griffith, and You Kill Me with Sir Ben Kingsley. 
to the documentaries The Celluloid Closet and the Oscar and Peabody-winning Common Thread Stories from the Quilt to the TV series John from Cincinnati for HBO. Rosenman made his first film, Sparkle, for Sony Pictures, starring the late Whitney Houston. Rosenman's now preparing a remake of Israel's successful comedy, Matter of Size, at Paramount, to be directed by John Turtletaub from the franchise National Treasure. He just produced his fifth documentary, Brave Miss World, which he sold to Netflix and was nominated for an Emmy. He is producing a movie now with David Ellison's Skydance, Operation Focus, based on Michael Oren's book, The Six-Day War, with Sam Raimi committed to direct. He is presently preparing a Broadway musical, financed and developed by John Wells, and a modern-day retelling of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, called Ebenezer. This year he produced Call Me By Your Name, written by James Ivory of Merchant Ivory fame, with Army Hammer... Timothy Chalamet. The movie was critically acclaimed at last year's Sundance Film Festival. It is a gay first love movie set near Milan in the summer of 1983. It was bought by Sony Pictures Classic and was released November 24, 2017 for award season. Across the board, reviews have been ecstatic, garnering 100 on Rotten Tomatoes. Metacritic also deemed it the fifth best-reviewed movie of all time. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Song, and Best Adapted Screenplay, which James Ivory won. Rosamund made his acting debut in Gus Van Zandt's Milk, playing David Goodstein, founder of The Advocate, opposite the Oscar-winning Sean Penn as Harvey Milk, and has since appeared in five more movies. Rosenman co-founded Project Angel Food, a lifeline to people affected by HIV, AIDS, and other life-threatening illnesses in 1989. The organization prepares and delivers more than 2,000 meals per day, and in May of 2017, they served their 11 millionth meal. In 1967, Rosenman took a leave from medical school to serve as an extern medic in the Six-Day War as part of his Israeli Defense Forces. There he met the genius Leonard Bernstein, who encouraged him to go into show business. For six years, he taught a master class in creative film producing at Tel Aviv University under the auspices of the Jewish Federation's Tel Aviv-Los Angeles Cultural Partnership. He taught the Israeli producing students how to sell their intellectual property to American networks, cable channels, and buyers. They have since sold more than 55 formats among them in treatment and the extremely successful Homeland for Showtime, as well as Tyrant, Dig, and The Affair. He is currently touring the world with his producing seminar entitled The Hollywood Sell, How to Pitch, Package and Finance Movies, which has been presented in Omaha, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra, Jerusalem, and Los Angeles, with upcoming engagements in Vancouver, Seattle, Austin, and San Francisco. Rosenman has been honored by the film organization Power Up as one of this year's 10 most amazing men in show business. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest, what an honor, Howard Rosenman. Thank you so much. It's so nice to see you again, Barry, after all these years. I have such fond memories of you. Tell me the first time and last time you lost an argument. <laughs> the first time with my father and the last time with my father. <laughs> <laughs> now, what is it about your father that at the time 
you were able to lose arguments with when your whole career one of your biggest and i think if i could be so bold one of your proudest things that go beyond show business in terms of what ends up in content is the fact that you don't lose arguments well when i was a kid uh i was a, i wasn't like i am now i was a nerdy thick-glassed little uh, smart boy that used to read about the kings and queens of England. My father is an Israeli, uh, seven generations born in Jerusalem and came to America. He was one tough motherfucker. So my father, when I was a little kid, I was like, you know, much more passive than I am now. And my father bullied me to such an extent and beat me, actually, the shit out of me psychologically and physically when he found out I was gay. And um, it molded me and shaped me and turned me into this tough motherfucking producer that I am now. And later on, when we reconciled, he, uh, I thanked him for his toughness with me because instead of bending into it, I bent out of it. He would say red and I would say blue. He would say do this and I would say fuck you. But at the very beginning, he won the arguments. When was the first time you felt he was abusive to you? Was it from as young as you can remember, or is it when you became more and more of an alternative person? No, it was when I was four. My father's an Israeli, and um, I have an uncle uh, uh, who married my father's sister, and he had six children. And we there, there were 21 first cousins, and my uncle Nat founded this school in Brooklyn called the Bialik School, named after the poet laureate of Israel, Chaim Nachman Bialik. And it was create in those days, um, Jewish schools were taught by Holocaust survivors who spoke Yiddish. And my uncle was a revisionist and a Zionist, and he liked Hebrew. And he wanted us all to be inculcated with Zionist values, American values, and was progressive. Now, what I normally do on this podcast, even though you're going to find it bizarre... I want you to explain to our audience that doesn't know what a revisionist or a Zionist is, okay. what your definition of those two things are. In the 1890s in Kiev, a man named Zeev Jabotinsky um, revised the image of the Jew from the hook-nosed ghetto moneylender pale to a soldier, priest, scholar, agriculturalist. He created essentially what became the new Sabra. He revised the image of the Jews. Later on, and he was a, a ideologically opposed to the socialists who created the state of Israel. Zionism is about, you know, the Jews having a homeland of their own in Israel. Um, and it was very, very controversial in Europe during the early 1900s. And there were two camps. There were the revisionists, and then there were the socialists. Later on, the socialists co-opted Begin's revised vision of the Jew and created the Sabra, which is what that is. So that's what a revisionist. My family were revisionists. They were not socialist utopianists. And so in those days, um, Jewish schools were taught by Holocaust survivors who were Yiddishists, the language of the ghetto. And my uncle and my father didn't want us to learn the language of the ghetto. They wanted us to learn what would become the language of the soldier, of the IDF, of the, of the Zionist. So when my grandmother said I was hocking her a Chinook or right. a Gazai Gazunt, exactly. that was the Yiddish from the ghetto. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So um, my uncle founded this school, and all of us went there. 
and when, when I was four, 1949, the teacher gave everybody clay pots. Everybody, okay, clay, and everybody made clay pots, but I didn't make a pot. Guess what I made? Use your imagination. <laughs> it was big and had a vein running down the middle and had a head. And I said it was the handle of the pot. They sent me to the school psychologist. And the school psychologist wrote a letter to my parents and my aunt and uncle. Now, my mother, whenever she had each of us, there were three of us, had what was then called a nervous breakdown. Today, it's called PPD. So the first year of our lives, she wasn't kind of present. And my father took over that role. And he was kind of tender. When he got this letter, he changed his whole attitude towards me and started beating me physically and emotionally and psychologically, which turned me into one tough motherfucker, by the way, as I said before. And um, I didn't know what was in the letter until 2001. My mother was on her deathbed. My parents went back to Israel. My sister made Aliyah about 30 years ago, and my parents moved back to Israel. My mother was on her deathbed, literally, in Jerusalem. And she goes like this, get me my pocketbook. Okay, I got her the pocketbook. She opened it up and she took out a letter, very yellowed letter. She said, read the letter and you'll understand everything. And this is what the letter said. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Roseman, your brilliant young son, Tzvi, my real name is Tzvi, is in the throes of a homosexual crisis. It's incumbent upon you to send him to a psychiatrist or psychoanalyst to determine whether he has enough heterosexual fabric to make a heterosexual adjustment or whether he's truly homosexual or yours truly. I didn't know what was in this letter, but when I read this letter, I understood what was going on. And this was 1949, almost 30 years before the American Psychiatric Association changed the designation of homosexuality from sick to normative. So he was very progressive, my, that teacher. And he wanted my parents to give me the freedom to be what I was. But my father was a tough sabra. He didn't want a fagala for a son. Fagala is Hebrew or gay. Right, faggot. Then my parents were in denial about my homosexuality until I was 21. So you're four. You know that you're gay at four? I knew I was gay when I was four. Absolutely. I knew I was gay earlier, actually. Because all the little boys, we went to a beach club in Farakway. It was called Roach's Beach Club on the beach. And there were solariums for men and women. All the other little boys looked in the slats to see the naked women. I went to see the naked men in the slats. And I knew that I was gay. I mean, I just knew it. I just knew that I was attracted to guys. How many gay people did you know growing up in the 40s and 50s? Didn't know it. Oh, one, my best friend, Reggie Berger, who's now a Jew for Jesus, who lives in Israel. I knew he was gay and his brother was gay. Um, but not many. Not, not the little community that I lived in Long Island. So what do you do when you're growing up gay, gay teenager, and there's no one in your circle you become an alienated motherfucker you become tough you are rejected constantly you are made fun of constantly and either you can become a wimp or you can take it all in and say i'll kill these motherfuckers and that's what i did <laughs> there's a quote that you have that i love that i'm going to read to you it's one of my favorite things and i've done so much research on you I feel like I'm never going to remove you from my brain. <laughs> this, this is the quote. I'm an Israeli. It's like, fuck with me, I'll kill you. And that's the way I feel about everything. I feel that way about Hollywood. People don't fuck with me because I have that attitude. 
And if you have that attitude, they don't fuck with me. And if they do fuck with me, I'll kill them. So you're growing up. The first time a kid take you aside and beat the shit out of you because you're gay, what do you do? In those days, I succumbed to it. But later on, okay, when I was 12 and 13, I would fight back and then I would take their arms and put it behind their backs and threaten to break the arm and then kill them. They didn't fuck with me anymore from the time I was 12. How do you learn how to do that? Because my father was such a bully. I learned it at his feet, okay? Because I saw what a bully was like and the only way to out bully a bully is to out bully the bully. And I learned that from my father because my father bullied me. And at the beginning, I succumbed to it. And then I realized, okay, I'll show him. And I got stronger and stronger and stronger until I said to my father, I'll kill you. <laughs> Literally. Don't fuck with me. I'll take a knife and put it through your heart. But you never said that to your dad. I said that to my dad. When you were what age? At 12. So that's when he laid a hand on you and you said that to him and he never touched never you again. Never touched me again. Did he ever psychologically make fun of you again? He didn't make fun of me. He bullied me because he, he didn't want a, a, a gay son, you know, and kept on bullying me, but never touched me again. Never. I remember interviewing this young producer, director, writer, who you may know, Neil Brennan, who co-created The Chappelle Show. Right. And one of the moments I remember the most that always struck me is he told me when he visited his dad on his deathbed and he got up the nerve to ask his dad, he said, dad, it, it feels like you never loved any of us and even mom. And his dad looked at him and said, you're right, Neil. I never did. Your dad, did you feel like he loved you less than everyone else in this family? Yes, but when my mother died in 2001, my father was in Israel. My father said to my sister, I have a sister who's six years younger than me, who's ultra-Orthodox, who lives in Jerusalem. My father said to my sister, we, we realized we were too tough on Tzvi, meaning me. Because what happened in the intervening years, I became successful. And I made a Barbra Streisand movie, and I was making a lot of money. And my father looked at it and respected me because, and I'll tell you the story after the Six Day War story, you'll understand when he first said to me. Um, and um, after my mother died, my father died in 2008, my father never said I love you, ever. In your and, entire life? Until after my mother died. After my mother died, he, he would end the sentence, end a phone conversation or a conversation with I love you. First time that happened, what did yeah. you do? I was stunned. Did you say yeah. I love you back? Yeah. I did. Had you ever said, I love you, Dad? No. No, because I didn't. Then. He was tough, and I was tough. and But I understand that in the context of the times. You know, 1949, it wasn't cool to be gay. Okay? Did your mother ever tell you she loved you? Yes, my mother was crazy about me. But my mother was complicated in her own right. But she was crazy about me and lived kind of lived through me. Well, she wasn't exactly happy you were gay either, was she? Not at all. She was, she was unhappier than my father because later on, so I came out when I was four and then I came out when I was 21. You came out when you were four. <laughs> they found out that I was gay. Are you so 
psychologically and intuitively in tune with the world, then you can literally be in a room with any group of people and know immediately who's on your team and who's not on your team. It's called Gadar. Number one, I have that. And I have two other gifts that I have. My nose, my schmecker, Yiddish word for smeller. Um, I could smell talent and I could smell corruption. I could tell you a funny story that I told my father's eulogy about corruption. I would love that. There was a man named Moshe Talansky, uh, Morris Talansky. And he was my teacher when he was 26 years old. He was a rabbi. He married a rich Jewish girl. And um, he, I knew immediately that he was awful and corrupt. I knew it. In fact, he was the one that bribed Omer, which caused the government to fall, okay, and, and got Omer out of power. So Tolansky, a good-looking guy, but corrupt to the core, um, would, um, he knew that I hated him, and he would harass me in school. I was 12. He would harass me. And one day, um, I hated him. And he knew that I hated him, and he hated me. And then one day, I, he embarrassed me in front of the whole class. The next day, I came in, and I wrote an Aramaic saying on the blackboard from the Talmud, he who embarrasses someone in public doesn't get to go to the next world. Well, when he saw this, he freaked out and came over to me and grabbed me by my neck. I, of course, I was 12 then, kicked him in a place where you're not supposed to kick a man. And he fell on the floor in a fetal position, and then I kicked him again in the head. So they called my father, who was in school more than I was. I was always getting in trouble. And my father, who's an Israeli, said to Talansky, did you embarrass my son in public? Talansky said, yes, he deserved it. My father said to him, you will not go to the next world. Then took me home and beat the shit out of me. <laughs> uh, I told this in my father's eulogy. Um, so, and Talansky later became the guy that brought down the government because he was so corrupt. And, and there was a movie made last year with Richard Gere called Norman, which is about Talansky by Joseph Cedar, who was his nephew, the director. If you could have told the story, any story at your mom's funeral, what would you have told? Um, two stories. We were going to my brother's bar mitzvah in Jerusalem when he was 13, and we walked down to the old city. My mother was very feisty. How old were you at the time? I must have been 30. Joel Schumacher and I went to my brother's bar mitzvah at the Wailing Wall. And um, so we were walking, and my mother was slow. And I said to my mother, Mother, hurry up, or you're going to be late to your own son's bar mitzvah. My mother said, Fuck the bar mitzvah. <laughs> and then I said to my mother, How could you say that about your son? Fuck the bar mitzvah and fuck my son. How could you say that in the holy city? Fuck my bar mitzvah, fuck my son, and fuck the holy city. <laughs> Joel and I made a t-shirt, Fuck the Holy City. Years later, when she got much more prudish, um, she, uh, Joel Schumacher directed Julia Roberts in two movies. And um, years later, when Joel was shooting uh, Dying Young, my mother always came to Joel's sets. And Julia was then a young actress, and she was beginning to get, you know, Julia would say, I want this and I want that. And my mother would say, Julia, good to want, don't mean you get. <laughs> <laughs>
And Julia quoted my mother many times in People magazine, in the David Letterman show, as my good friend Simon Roseman of Farakway used to say, good to want don't mean you get. <laughs> All right. Could you do me a favor and segue into the six-day war and for our audience who might not have been alive then or aren't incredible history buffs, let them know the significance the huge significance of the Six-Day War, the dates and the involvement and the political ramifications, and not only that, for Zionists all over the world. Well, the State of Israel was proclaimed in 48 um, by the United Nations in 47, but David Ben-Gurion proclaimed the nation of Israel in 48, and then 100 million Arabs went to war against them, and they lost. But in the process... 100 million versus how many? Three. Um, so they lost the War of Independence, but they occupied the old city, the Jewish quarter, and the whole old city and all of West, the West Bank. Well, Israel was like a rum state because they accepted the de facto division by the United Nations and the Arabs didn't. So when they lost the War of Independence, you know, a lot of the Arabs fled, which is the basis of a lot of the problems now, the refugee problem. And um, Israel started a state, but they didn't have the old city and they didn't have any of the holy cities because they had the Jordanians had it. Well, on May 5th of 1967, Nasser, who was the president of Egypt, blockaded the Straits of Tehran, which didn't allow food to go up all the Red Sea to Eilat to feed the nation of Israel. It was actually a casus belli. It was a cause of war. So during the time from May 5th, 67, to June 5th, 67, it was the time in Israel that's called attention. There was universal male conscription. All my cousins would go to take the place of our relatives who had pharmacy stores and clothing stores who were called up to the reserves. And two weeks before the war, one of my cousins said to me, if war breaks out, we're going to go. And we all knew the war was going to break out. But it was only 19 years. It was only 20, 20 some odd years after the Holocaust. Okay. And we were ingrained with Zionist beliefs. And I went to Israel a lot. So I have, a, uh, I have the 1,000 first, second, third, and fourth, and fifth cousins that live there now. So they're not my family genealogist. So um, what happened was I was in medical school at the time. So I decided to go two weeks early. And through a cousin of mine, I said I would be a, what was today is called a lone soldier, volunteering for the IDF. I did an internship for about three or four days. They handed me a bayonet. And How old were you? 22, 20, 22, exactly. How and many gay men were in the army? A lot, because Israel has always allowed the gay thing to happen in the army because they need the population. And the army is the way that it's a melting pot. And so the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim, the gays and the straights, they all learn how to live together. Sephardic are Jews from the Levant and Spain and Portugal and all the Arab countries and the Ashkenazis from Eastern Europe and Russia and the Pale of Settlement and all of Western Europe. And there was a big division uh, and they would treat the Sephardim were treated like the blacks were treated. Um, but now it's much more equal. Growing up in the neighborhood, you were not accepted as a gay young man. Your dad beat you. 
classmates tried to beat you until you stood up for yourself. When you got into the army, did you find similar people or were people all very accepting? Hey, we're fighting together as a team. I don't care. People in the Israeli army are very accepting. You know, very. Um, well, I mean, there's some... There was some prejudice in the 60s. Now there's none. But people in the army, if, you, if, if I knew someone was gay, and even the straight people, they were, they were cool, even in 67. So what happened was, on the morning of June 5th of 1967, the Israeli Air Force rose up early in the morning, flew around Egypt, and bombed the entire Egyptian Air Force on the ground and destroyed it. And it was... The Israelis had hegemony over the skies of the Middle East, and that's when Sharon marched through the Negev all the way to the Suez Canal. Um, the Syrians started shooting from the Golan Heights. The Israelis conquered that. And what happened was um, they shipped me off to Gaza, to the south end of Gaza, to a town called Rafiach, the, uh, the, the, the Gaza salient on the south side of the Gaza. And I did... Uh, I worked in a medical field hospital doing triage and amputations. I did that straight for three days. But you're not a doctor. I'm a medical student. In war times, do they allow you to... They allowed me because they needed. So I was, I was doing assisting on operations, assisting on amputations, assisting on triage, not operations. Tell our audience the first time you're there and horribly injured soldier comes in and your face to face was something that you'd only heard about how are you how do you react well how do you i don't forget yourself? that i had done a rotation in medical school my third year already in surgery so i was used to the bloodiness of it but you never saw somebody with their leg blown off or somebody but i saw people with diabetes legs and you know all yeah. that but i never saw, saw that and most of the patients that i worked on were arabs funnily enough okay because the israelis the Egyptian troops fled, and the Israelis bombed them. And, <laughs> and so they bombed them, yet they would help yes. the Arabs, and they would heal right. the Arabs, even exactly. though they were their enemies and right. shooting at them. Exactly. Is that's, that unusual in wartime? Yes, and it's the ethos yeah. of the Israeli army. It's part of the purity of arms. When you're saving an Arab's life... When he comes to and he sees and he realizes that the people who saved his life were the Jews in Israel, what's the normal reaction? Some were grateful and some were not, and we handcuffed those that were not to the bed. So I was doing that straight for three days, didn't go to sleep. On the fourth day of the war, my commanding officer, my family is called the Ancients of Jerusalem because they settled in uh, uh, Jerusalem in 1840. My grandfather's great-grandfather came to Palestine from Kiev with eight children in 1840. So they were called the Ancients of Jerusalem, Vatikei Yerushalayim. My commanding officer knew about my family, and he said to me on the fourth day of the war, the IDF is encircling Jerusalem. It's going to be in our, the old city. It's going to be in our hands in a few moments. You should go up there and have the privilege to be there when this happens. And I was there when Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, who was the chief Ashkenazi rabbi, blew the ram's horn, the shofar, on the Temple Mount to indicate the return of the Jews to Zion after 2,000 years, and it blew my mind to smithereens. Then I was transferred to the Hadassah Hospital, and 30 days after the war, Leonard Bernstein, the great composer-conductor who uh, wrote West Side Story, was the head of the New York Philharmonic, and um, and a genius wrote Candide, and the only genius, well, 
one of the very few geniuses I've ever met, um, came to Israel to conduct Mahler's Resurrection Symphony on the newly reconquered Mount Scopus. He had come to Israel in 48 after the war of, we won the War of Independence and did Mahler's Resurrection in the west side of the city. So it's Hail the Conquering Hero who's coming back, but this time it was Leonard Bernstein. And so he came to visit the volunteers, most of whom were Scandinavian. I'm standing there at the Hadassah Hospital in my whites with a stethoscope hanging out of my pocket, blood-stained white shoes. And he looks at me and he says, oh, my God, I know a guy just like you who was my waiter at a discotheque in New York. I answer him in Hebrew, maestro, I was your waiter. <laughs> Whereupon he kissed me on the lips and gave me four tickets to this concert. I took my family to the concert on the downbeat of the resurrection with the new city in front of me, the old city behind me. My brain, again, blew into a billion fragments, and I'm still picking up those pieces. At any rate, at the party afterwards, Leonard asked me if I wanted to be a gopher on the documentary that they were making about him conducting the Israel Philharmonic in Judea and Samaria for the IDF. And it was a war zone. You couldn't get in unless you knew somebody. And so I wanted to see the, I wanted to see Jericho, I wanted to see Hebron, I wanted to see uh, all of Judea and Samaria. And so I became his gopher. And then one night, I walked into his tent and came out on the other side. Which is unusual at that time, because if I'm not mistaken, and I've done my research correctly, he was married and had children. He was married and had three children, and he took me on vacation with his wife and three children. He always traveled with an entourage. Very good-looking young men and very beautiful young women. But Lenny had a lover in Israel for 20 years. Did she know? It's a very famous story. Lenny was the Wunderkind when he was 21, 22 in the early 40s. It's so weird to hear somebody call Leonard Bernstein Lenny. I usually didn't call him to his face Lenny. I called him the maestro. Um, but um, he, uh, I think he had written Fancy Free and he was ready. Everybody knew he was going to become a genius. And they were all in love with him. Kusevitsky and Aaron Copeland. Aaron Copeland was unrequited, but Kusevitsky I think he had an affair with. Then Lenny was very promiscuous and very wild uh, in New York in the 40s. But not with women, with men. Yes. And then he met her. She was gorgeous, a Chilean, an actress, uh, whose grandfather was Jewish, but he converted to Catholicism. She, she had Jewish blood, but she was raised Catholic. She was very manicured. She was very beautiful. And she was brilliant beyond belief. Okay, when you were at dinner with her, she spoke eight languages fluently. So she would go from French to German to Italian to English. You, you didn't believe what you're listening to, and brilliant. Well, he fell in love with her, and they had a relationship, a very hot sexual relationship. So he had never had heterosexual relationships before he uh, met that her? I don't know, but I don't think so. I'm not sure. But I had a girlfriend for seven years. You know, in your 20s, you could stick it in any hole. I'll try to remember that. <laughs> so um, what happened was they had this very hot sexual relationship for months and months and months, and they got engaged. Did she know that he... No. no. Then he broke off the engagement to tell her that he was gay. She went back to Chile with a tail between her legs and then wrote a very famous letter to Leonard, Lenny that said in the letter... I love you. I want to have your children. I want to be married to you. Just promise me that you won't embarrass me in public. He agreed. She came back. They got married. They had three children. 
They moved to Westport. Arguably, he wrote his best work, West Side Story and Candide, and um, maybe Trouble in Tahiti, when he was married to her. And then he became Leonard Bernstein with The Cape. And then he traveled all over the world and was the conductor of every, of every symphony in the world, Vienna, Berlin, um, everywhere. And every night there was a line of boys who were all square-jawed with cleft chins, curly-haired, and curious about the world, and bright, and Jewish, okay? Online, waiting for him. And then Lenny got sloppy, okay? And then what happened was that um, and I would go to uh, Lenny and Felicia's house every Friday night because they had all of Broadway and all of show business there. Everybody who was anybody in both worlds. Where in, was he living? The Dakota. Um, I go there every Thanksgiving because my, one of my closest friends and my mentor lives there. Um, and then, oh, so Lenny and I, so I would go there every Friday night. So you're standing there with Hal Prince and Jerry Robbins and, uh, you know, uh, everybody who was anybody in show business in the classical music world. It was very, very exhilarating. And I would tell everybody I want to be a producer. And they would pat me on the head and say, oh, yeah, do you have an uncle who's in the business? Do you have money? And they all didn't believe me. And then what would happen, I went out to Hollywood and I made a Barbara Streisand movie very early on. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey, everybody. I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office, and everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get $100 off and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had, and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again.
I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the air doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the air doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the air doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. So when you're going to Leonard Bernstein's house, you're still a medical student? No, I wasn't. When I was Lenny's gopher, Lenny would say to me, you should leave medical school and go into the arts. You will never bow to the mistress of science, Lenny said to me. And I didn't know what he meant. Then he took me on vacation with his wife and three children to Italy. She didn't know what was going on then. Okay. And um, when I went back to America in the fall of 67, I was assisting at an amputation and listening to Lenny saying to me, you'll never bow to the mistress of science. I decided to take leave of absence. So I came to New York. I said to Lenny, I'm here. I listened to you. He said, well, you know, I'm married with three children, but I'll introduce you to two of my best friends. All right. So you go to New York. Now, presumably, you don't have a lot of money. Your parents certainly aren't going to financially support you because they don't support your lifestyle. You go to New York, the most expensive city in the world, even in 1967. How do you find a place to stay, have the money to survive, and do what you need to do to get to the next step. First, in order to survive, I sold ties at Bloomingdale's, okay, for a while. Then I became a driver on a movie set for Jordan Christopher, who was married to Sybil Burton. And then when I, Lenny said, I'm going to introduce you to two of my best friends, he introduced me to Catherine Hepburn and Stephen Sondheim. So I became Miss Hepburn's assistant on a musical called Coco. Who introduced you to Lenny. Okay, so I became Miss Hepburn's assistant. But you have to interview with her to get the job. Yes, I interviewed with her to get Tell the job. Tell our audience about the, the interview with Catherine Hepburn. The only thing she said to me was, will you be on time? She was a stickler for on time. She met me. She got a good recommendation from me from Leonard Bernstein. We sat. She was fantastic. Very to the point. Very. So I was Miss Hepburn's assistant, which is how I started making money. And then I got a job at Ben & Bowles, became a, becoming a uh, producer on commercials. First I was an assistant, and then I became a producer. So you're ben, paying your dues, working your way up in show business. Exactly. What was your first inspiration growing up to get into show business? Was it that moment where Lenny said to you, listen, you're not going to be a mistress to medicine? No. It was much, much earlier. What happened? When I was nine, my mother took me to see the re-release of Gone with the Wind in 1954. Okay. I went to the Pix Theater. I saw Gone with the Wind, and it blew my mind. 
And I come out and I say to my mother, who was an Israeli, a Palestinian immigrant, Ima, mother, who made that movie? And she said, Vivian Lee and Clark Gable. I said, but who hired Vivian Lee and Clark Gable? She went to the library, she did research, and she came back and gave me a book called Memo by David O. Selznick. It was all about his memos that he wrote during the making of Gone with the Wind, the pre-production, the production, and post-production. And I read this book and I said, shit, this is what I'm gonna do. But- You're how old? I'm nine. You're nine and you say, this is what I'm gonna do. Yeah. And then I read about every single mogul in Hollywood. Every single mogul. Sam Goldwyn, Adolf Zucker, all of them, okay? And I became obsessed with it. At the time, who was the biggest mogul? In nine, Zanuck, uh, you know, Brown, uh, Goldwyn, um, uh, the, Con the Coens, was still, the Coen brothers were still alive. Uh, Louis B. Mayer was still alive. And, and so what happened was, I graduated high school very early because in New York there's a thing called the Regents and I was fluent in Hebrew and French. So I took those Regents, I went to summer school and I graduated a year early, I was young anyway. Then I went to college, to Brooklyn College and I graduated from that early. Why Brooklyn College? Because it was had a great reputation and it was close to my, my parents lived in Long Island. So close. you lived at home when you went there? Yeah. Um, and then, I went to medical school because it was during the Vietnam War. And if you would, went to medical school, you didn't have to go to the army. And I didn't want to go to the American army. Ironically, what happened was I ended up in the Israeli army. But I didn't want to go to the American army because I didn't want to get shipped off to Vietnam and get killed. You know, So that's why I went to medical school. And I had this faint desire to be a plastic surgeon. But in my mind, you know, early on, I wanted to be an actor and then uh, an actor or a producer. Um, my mother even said to me at one point before I applied to medical school, she said, you sure you don't want to go to acting school? I'll pay for it. You know, at any rate. So, um, so during the 70s, when I came out to Hollywood and I, I started making movies, I would fly in every Christmas on December 17th, Felicia was an actress, and Lenny would conduct Peter and the Wolf, Tchaikovsky's Peter and the Wolf, and Felicia was the narrator. And so those things are booked five years in advance. And so I would go in on December 17th to listen to Lenny conduct and to Felicia to narrate, and then we would go out to Luchow's, which was a restaurant on 14th Street between 3rd and 4th Avenues, which was Christmas all year round, like the Russian Tea Room, and we would have a Christmas dinner and exchange gifts. I did that for several years. In 1977, I flew to New York, and there was a rustle in the audience. There was no Google and no phones. 77, Carnegie Hall. And I said to the man next to me, what's going on? He said, did you read the newspaper today? Leonard Bernstein said he was going to Paris on a sabbatical to be with his boyfriend, a French composer. Everyone was wondering whether Felicia is going to appear to do the narration, because it was the first time that the New York Times used the word gay. So Felicia came out and she does the narration and Lenny's conducting. And at the end of the conducting, at the end of the Peter and the Wolf, his assistant brings him a hundred roses. He goes up to the stage, walks across the stage to give his roses to his diva, Felicia, his wife. And as he hands her the roses, she pivots and walks off the stage and the roses fall with a thing on the floor. The audience gasps. Needless to say, Felicia did not join me and uh, Lenny for dinner. 
I went. I was the shoulder that he cried on because he did love her. But he did go to Paris to be with his boyfriend on sabbatical. Four months later or five months later, Felicia contracted lung cancer. Lenny came back to be with her until she died a year later. And he was never the same, ever, from 1978 or 79, when she died until he died in 1990. He was not the same physically. He was not the same emotionally. He was not the same creatively. He was not the same psychologically. And he abused himself, smoked. He had emphysema. She died of lung cancer. And um, I was the shoulder that he cried on. He lived in the Dakota. Oh, yeah, I told you that. Incredible story. Incredible story. He was incredible. And I never met anybody like him, ever. Ever, ever, ever. Although I was very... Stephen Sondheim is pretty much a genius in that category. I guess Marty Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola and Nureyev and Balanchine. I can't think of too many others. You said in the business you've only met, really, and been around a few geniuses. I find that very hard to believe. Because when I read these names, there's a lot of geniuses in here. Barry Diller. Well, Barry Diller's a genius. And David Gevin's a genius, yes. And Mike Ovitz was a genius. But not on the level of Leonard Bernstein. All from the William Morris mailroom. Right. Not on the level of, of Leonard Bernstein. There's no one on the level of Le Leonard Bernstein. No one at all. It, maybe Gershwin. You know. Maybe, uh, 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 what's his name? Aaron Copeland. When you see what's happening today in music, but when you see a guy, let's say like Drake, who has 28 songs in the Billboard Top 100 right now in hip hop and rap, which is hugely popular now. And back then, obviously what was happening was huge and his world was huge. When you look at Michael Jackson, did you look at Michael Jackson the same as you look at Lenny? Kind of. Lenny has a special place in, in the firmament. Kind of, yeah. He was a genius that way. Drake, okay, I'll tell you a story. My, my grandparents lived on Seagirt Boulevard on the beach in Farakway. And I would go on Shabbat, I would go up to, to their roof. And you could see the skyline of New York from my grandparents' apartment on Seagirt Boulevard. And I would say, one day I'm going to get there and I'm going to meet Leonard Bernstein and I'm going to meet Edward Albee, another genius. And I'm going to meet Jerry Robbins and I'm going to meet Stephen Sondheim and I'm going to meet Nureyev or whatever. I often now say, a kid who grows up in Farakway and goes to his grandparents' house for Shabbat meal and goes on the roof in Secret Boulevard and looks out at the skyline of New York, who is he going to want to see? Drake? Mark Zuckerberg? Not on the same level of Lenny Bernstein. Trust me. Okay? Drake is a very, very, very extremely talented guy. Tell me somebody in the music world today that's the closest... Leonard Bernstein in your eyes no one I mean there's Michael Tilson Thomas who's a friend of Lenny there's uh, what's his name here uh, Dudamel um, maybe no one had the kind of there's never been a musical like West Side Story in the history of musicals ever there's West Side Story and there's everything else okay except Stephen Sondheim is in that 
area. One of my favorite lines from a comedian in New York named Mario Cantone, who you probably oh, know. Him. He's a good friend of mine. One of his first routines was, he said, you know, young gay kid, I'm watching West Side Story, and I was really upset because I felt like it wasn't realistic. I mean, you got these guys dancing through the streets of Spanish Harlem, and the guy's yelling up, Maria, 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 and only one girl's head popped out of the window. <laughs> That's funny. But, I mean, think about it. I mean, and Lenny not only was a composer, he was a conductor. And not only was he a conductor, he was a great teacher. If you look at the young people's concerts, they're all on tape. You've never seen anything like this ever in the history of the world. Well, the thing about him that was always so fascinating to me is that he appealed from drool to drool, from the youngest yeah. to the oldest. Yeah. I was crazy about him and obsessed with him when I was a kid. So when I finally met him in Israel in the summer of 67, when he was 48 or 49, I guess. Uh, wait, how old was he? So in 19, he was born in 1918. So in 67, he was how old? 49. So, and I was always, I always liked men that age. You liked you know? older men. So your first entrance into show business, you're assisting these people, Catherine Hepburn. And what's your first foray into, okay, I'm going to produce my first movie. How do I do it? How did you make it happen? How did you figure out? How did you navigate? How is somebody going to believe in you, Catherine Hepburn's assistant, and say, hey, I trust this guy to produce a movie? I'll tell you the story. It's a great story. The first week that I left medical school, I went to a party that Tennessee Williams' agent, Billy Barnes, brought me to. And it was a party for doctors. And there I met a young man named Barry Diller. I don't know what he was doing there because he was the doctor. He had just invented the movie of the week at ABC. He was a Wunderkind. And Barry and I hit it off. And Barry would say to me like this, I don't trust or like a lot of people, he said to me. But I like you. You're smart. I like smart. He said, do me a favor, he says to me. Don't ask me for anything. Don't ask me for house seats. Don't ask me for tickets to Madison Square Garden. Don't ask me for anything. But when you're ready, ask me for one thing, and I'll do it. And then don't ask me for anything ever again. And I thought about that. And I was, it was strange. And then as I got more and more embedded into show business and into that life, I realized that when you make friends with creative people and you work with them, you're also going to exploit them. It's just inevitable. It's just what the business is. And it's heartbreaking because a lot of times you get into business with people, they're your best friends, and then they fuck you one way, you fuck them, and you never speak to them again. However, what Barry was saying to me, I know about this business, I know about this life, I understand the nature of friendship and exploitation. I'm giving you permission to exploit me once and then don't do it again. Well. After I worked for Catherine Hepburn, I met a woman named Kitty Hawks, who was the daughter of Howard Hawks and the great, uh, the great film director, Howard Hawks, and Slim, Slim Hawks, uh, Lady Keith. And I fell in love with her. And we were together for several years. 
I was already producing commercials winning Clio's at, at, at um, Benton and Bowles. And I'm using a lot of talent that I was that I was obsessed with. Ashford and Simpson did music. Joel did Joel Schumacher did clothes on my commercials for Cool Whip and uh, Cool and Creamy and for Vicks Nyquil and for Havilland Oil. All, I was already packaging. I began to understand what that was like. So Kitty then was working for Ron Bernstein, who was working for D- Danny Melnick, who was working for David Susskind. She was a reader, and one day she came in with a manuscript of a novel and it was about a killer shark off the coast of Long Island and I read it and I said holy shit this is Peyton Place meets 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 Moby Dick I read the book the Barry was at the Waldorf I called up Barry and I said I'm ready for my one favor and Barry now had ascended from the movie of the week to the two-hour circle entertainment to the head of the network by 19 by ABC 19, by 1972 he was written for Leonard Goldson and so I go to the Waldorf. I tell Barry about Peyton Place meets Moby Dick. I don't own the material, but Barry said, that's great. Sounds like a great TV movie. Fly out to California and meet the head of my 90s, who was named D.M. Barkley. They made 100 of them in those days. The head of my 90s. The 90-minute movies. Of the oh, week. okay. And in those days, and so she loved this idea. And she said, I want to make this. So I flew back to New York to have lunch at the Russian Tea Room with the writer who fell in love with me. And the agent, oh, I forget her, Roberta, fuck her name, she had white hair. At any rate, um, so at the time, ABC was offering, well, a producer had the right to own the movie if the network ran it for two runs. They made the movie $425,000. If you came in for less, you kept it. If you went over, you had to fund it, the overages. It was a big business in those days because you owned all the ancillary rights all over the world. So the 90-minute movie budgets were $425,000. Now, a lot of people cut their teeth. What would that be like now? How much money? $2 million. Okay. Um, so if the budget was $425,000, ABC offered the agent of this writer $10,000 for the basic material and $10,000 for the screenplay. of the budget, essentially. Okay? Well, the agent said, we're expecting a little more. So Barry said, I'll introduce you to the head of my two-hour motion picture. That's a million and a half dollar budget. They pay $75,000 for the basic material and $75,000 for the screenplay. So I went to the head of the two hours, Dick Bassman, ABC Circle Entertainment. Dick read it, calls me up, and said... I'm going to pass because we here at ABC Circle Entertainment only will make movies that people will go out of the house on Saturday night to see, and this isn't one of them. <laughs> so I call up Barry, and I said, what should I do about this schmuck? He said, well, I can't countermand my own executive. Three weeks later, it was sold to Zanuck and Brown for the then unheard of price of $425,000, I think, and um, it was yours. And the writer was Peter Benchley. So Barry calls me up and says, okay, you obviously have your nose to the right thing. Find any piece of shit, come out here and I'll make it. And that's how I made my first television movie that John Badham directed. That must have been heartbreaking for you. Still heartbreaking because I wouldn't have had to work all these years if I produced yours. Tell me the call you made to that two-hour movie guy. He died. I had an affair with him before. 
he's died early. But Not you never thing. made the call to him after it sold for four hundred. Well, I told him that he was an asshole. <laughs> and then after it sold, I said to him, you don't deserve this job. Was he alive when it came out in the theater? Yes. And what was the conversation like? He was like? freaked out. He, he knew. But every executive has a story like that. Every executive passes on something. Tell me something that you've passed on that became really successful that depressed you. Several things. Um, Saturday Night Live. I was introduced to Lorne Michaels early on, and he officed out of my offices at RSO Films. And I thought, oh, it's a variety show. What? That's one of them. There were more. There were several more. Was there ever somebody who you passed on who Became never person. gave you the time of day after you passed on him and would never take a meeting with you after that? And Yes, there was some. Um, I came late to a meeting with John Ridley once. And he walked out of the meeting, and now he's become a big deal, so he won't speak to me. Tell our audience the first movie that you choose to produce and why. So Ron Bernstein, who Kitty was working for, found this uh, screenplay called uh, Isn't It Shocking? About a guy that goes around killing people with an electrocardiograph machine, not Jaws. But ABC decided to make it. They gave us the $425,000, and I hired John Batham, who'd never made a movie before, who later went on to do Saturday Night Fever and War Games. Why would you, in your first production ever, where you know you have to make your mark, hire somebody who's never done anything before like yourself? Well, I told you that I have two talents. I could smell talent, and I could smell corruption. So I knew when I met John that he was talented. And what happened, he assembled a fantastic cast. Alan Alder, who was then the biggest star on television, Ruth Gordon, Edmund O'Brien, Lloyd Nolan, uh, Will Gear. Um, uh, it was an incredible cast. How do you get these people for a $425,000 production? Because people wanted to work. But they're working for $6 in a bucket of chicken. Hello. But they get exposure. They get to be seen nationally. And to work with Alan Alder. That was the draw. If a budget was four twenty-five, right. and Allen's the big name at right. the top, right. the first position, right? Out of the four twenty-five, what's he making for the film? Forty. So he's making ten percent of the movie, probably. And had probably big back end. Was that the formula back then for those movies? Yeah. We're going to get the big person, and you're going to make ten percent of the budget. Something like that. What happened? It's a very big business. Well. What happened was we made the movie. It did so well in the ratings. Um, Woody Allen, who was married to Louise Lasser at the time, threw, and Joel did the clothes for, Joel Schumacher did the clothes for uh, Isn't It Shocking, uh, threw our, our, our opening night party for us when it was fir first broadcast. Woody threw that party. Um, it did so well that ABC said to me, we want you to do more. But then what happened was I met a man named Robert Stigwood, who um, managed the careers of Eric Clapton, the Bee Gees, and Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. And I met him. <laughs> One night I picked up somebody at a discotheque in New York, drunk out of my mind. He takes me to the place where he was staying, 135 Central Park West so drunk I don't remember anything. We were sitting at breakfast with Peter Brown, who was running Stigwood's organization in New York. And 
this guy named Tommy Nutter, who was a very famous uh, designer, says to me, tell Peter the story that you told me last night. I don't even know what I told him the night before, but I told him the story of three black girls in Harlem who form a girl group because I was obsessed with R&B, as was Joel. And so I told the story to Peter. Peter loved it and told it to Stigwood. And Joel and I came up with the story together, Joel Schumacher. And they gave us $5,000 to write a treatment at around the same time that I was doing Isn't It Shocking. So Stigwood knew that I had a relationship with Barry Diller. And I introduced Stigwood to Barry. And out of that came Grease and Saturday Night Fever. I was running the company. Okay. So during those go-go years of the 70s, when I was running RSO Films, it was gigantic, okay? And I was making, and I made five more television movies. But you're running the company now as an executive and not getting the producer credit and not producing. Right. You were hiring producers right. or bringing them in. Right. Kevin McCormick produced uh, Saturday Night Fever. He was the head of RSO Films in London. And he became the producer who found the material. Now, after three to five years of success, sitting across from me, the way I'm sitting across from you, it seems to me you're the kind of guy who would be the first person to go in and say, listen, I love this job. I want to continue. But from now on, every movie, I get a producer credit on it, too. Well, that's what happened. So I made five television movies. And then I went out and I made Sparkle, which I got sole credit on. Sole producer credit. <laughs> produced by, but Siggy and Sigwood and Peter Brown got executive producer. Why would they give you soul for your first because one? Because I wrote it. I wrote the story with Joel. And Curtis Mayfield wrote the songs, and Aretha Franklin recorded the soundtrack. We didn't release the soundtrack of the movie. We released Aretha recording Curtis Mayfield's soundtrack of Sparkle. Curtis Mayfield, for those of you who don't know, most famous song was Superfly. Right. And, and Shaft, I think, too. No? And Shaft, yeah. So after then, Sparkle, um, I then made a movie. I had I had left running Stigwood's company and became a producer. I produced Sparkle. And then I produced the main event in Resurrection. That was Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill? Exactly. So when your producer, as the audience doesn't know, a lot of times you put elements together from scratch. So you're reading a ton of different screenplays and your company, I presume people were working for you reading screenplays and they were recommending things to you or was it just you? No. Kitty Hawks, after I broke up with her, came out here and became an agent. And then I introduced her to Ned Tannen. But she was an agent at ICM or IFA, it was called at the time. And she had a client named Renee Missile. Renee Missile had an idea that was based on the Lena Wertmuller movie called, uh, not Seven Beauties, what was the movie that she made before that? It won an Oscar for Best Foreign Film. Swept Away. Yes. Which was essentially a communist dialectic. It was about a woman who had ownership over a man. Okay, it was a communism, capitalism, what she was dealing with. Renee said to me, let's make Swept Away, a remake of Swept Away. And I think we both came up with the idea that actually it should be a woman that owns the contract of a boxer. So Kitty introduces, and I had an idea about a female Christ figure. Um, I was in Jerusalem in 1975 on Christmas Day visiting my parents. My parents moved back. And I went to the old city 
um, on Christmas morning of 75. It was gray and foggy. I was on the Via Dolorosa, the street of, of, of tears where Jesus carried the cross, all the stations of the cross. I was at the sixth station of the cross, and I looked at the seventh, I think it was Veronica's Veil, and I see a woman with a golden halation, an aura around her. And I say, wow, what if Christ came back as a woman? And that idea I told to Kitty. Kitty's husband, well, Kitty's husband was Ned Tannen, who was the head of Universal. So Kitty introduced me to Renee. So Renee had this idea about a woman who had ownership over a boxer. And I had this idea about a female Christ figure. And we decided to form a company. And we made both those movies. Okay, it was a long process, very, very long process. It went through a lot. That's a masterclass in and of itself. But eventually, we. So you get somebody to write the screenplay. Right. Presumably, it takes them around six months or less to write it. It, it took longer. And it was the first screenplay was a piece of shit. So when the screenplay finally gets to the place where you love it, do you have a list? For the woman, a list for the man, and where is Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill on the list? Are they number one on the list, or are they way down on the list? It's a great story. Another great story. The movie, we developed it at MGM, because Kitty sold it to Sherry Lansing, who was the development executive. Sherry brought it into MGM, and Dick Shepard was the head of MGM at the time. So Michael Black, the very canny agent at... Uh, ICM, ICM, who was very close to Sue Mangers. Sue Mangers, for the audience, is probably one of the greatest agents in the world and had this incredibly strong Hall of Fame career, like a Sandy Koufax career, where it was like a condensed amount of time, and I don't think anybody really understands what happened. She was beyond belief, and she also had a bigger-than-life personality. And then was gone out of the business. It's tragic. Bette yeah. Midler played her on Broadway, actually, a couple of years ago. She was bigger than life, and she, was, she bestrode this town like a colossus, and I was obsessed with her. I loved her. Well, she always invited me to her parties because I was cute and dressed well. And... So Sue had these incredible parties where a guy like me was the least important person at the party. But she always liked to throw in sexy guys and sexy girls, you know, and all these gigantic, bigger-than-life stars, Warren Beatty, Jack Nicholson, Barbara Streisand, like that. So Michael Black had told me that Barbara Streisand had to be in production by September 1st of 1979 because she had a company called First Artists, that was a company with Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Dustin Hoffman, and Sidney Poitier. And they each had to do five movies for this company, which was based at Warner Brothers. But according to their deal, Barbara had to be in production by a certain date or else the studio could hand her any piece of shit and she would have had to do it. Now, at that time, uh, Diana Ross was having an affair with, um, with um, Ryan O'Neill. Sue had just signed Diana. <laughs> so I called up Sue and I said, I have this script. It's not great. It needs work. It's at MGM. You could recreate the What's Up Doc package with Ryan O'Neill and Diana Ross because Diana and Ryan were having an affair. Had there ever been a film at that time no. with a love story between an no. African-American person? And no, no. So 
And that was what was, I thought was interesting about it. I was obsessed with Diana because I made Sparkle, which is about Diana's relationship with Gary Gordy, in my mind. So Sue reads it, calls me up and says to me, how would you like Howard Rosenman presents Barbara Streisand in the main event? I said, but I gave it to you for Diana. <laughs> and Sue said, fuck the, and she used a vulgar name, a Yiddish for a black person. She said, let's go with Barbara. Because she knew that Barbara had to be in production. So she gave it to John Peters. John Peters loved it. Barbara never liked the script and hated the movie, I might add. Um, but She hated the movie after it was done? Or? Yeah, she hated the movie. Yeah, still does. Hates me. Because what happened is she tried to fuck me on the deal, and I turned the tables on, on them, and I didn't let them. And I got even more money out of it. So we made the, the movie, and the movie made a lot of money. And to this, and I was a net player. Explain to our audience gross player versus net player. A gross player gets points of the gross of what the movie actually makes at the box office. Which is actually much more advantageous. Right. A net player is after the distributors and the exhibitors take off all their expenses, then you're a net player. But still, back then it was good because back then people didn't fuck you as much. But there were 45 definitions of net, and now there are 65 definitions of gross, depending upon where you stand in the pecking order. And Hollywood, it's all based on precedence, the precedential deals. How much money did the movie make at the box office back then? I think maybe $100 million. So I was in a, I still get checks. It's now 19, uh, 2018. I still get checks. We call her Barbara, the gift that keeps on giving. I was a net player, and I get, I get net checks today from Warner Brothers. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Wondery. Check out their lineup of some of the greatest podcasts in the world at Wondery.com. And Aquatrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And Good Company, an extraordinary web series on YouTube that host Scott Bowling created where you can watch music interviews with incredible artists talking openly about their journey in the music business. If you like a great in-depth music interview where you can hear about each album in chronological order and what the artist experienced along the way, this is the show for you. Interviews with incredible talents like Michael Sweet from Striper, Clinton Lejean from Seven Dust, 
Brian Head Welsh from Corn, Elias from Nonpoint, Mikey from Islander, Sonny from POD, and Rich Ward from Fozzie and Stuck Mojo, just to name a few. Check out Good Company on any social media outlet under Good Company with Bowling or go to www.scottgoodcompany.com. And finally, Boku Superfoods, the purest, most potent, and delicious certified organic, kosher, and vegan superfood blends on the planet. Boku Superfood is changing the game for thousands of people in 65 countries with their incredible formulated powers that you just add any liquid to and make the healthiest drinks or smoothies in the world. Just go to BokuSuperfood.com. That's B-O-K-U Superfood.com. Look for the three-pack trial. Enter the promo code Barry at checkout. Just pay a minimal shipping fee and get a full week's supply of Boku Superfood for free. I guarantee you'll look and feel better and understand why Boku is the number one family-owned superfood company in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. The one thing that I've learned is to submit to a higher power, you know, and when you realize when you're down and out that nothing's going to happen, just submit to a higher power and pray, whatever that might be. That's the single, the most important thing is to be able to have the humility to understand that you can't control things. Now, you can push it and push it and push it, but you can't control it. And you've got to understand that, okay? And if you believe enough in your project, you can make it happen, but sometimes it doesn't happen. And at that time, you turn it over, you submit, whatever it is that you believe in. Have the humility to be able to do that. Humility is a very important thing. Arrogance will kill. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.